Right, welcome everybody to another episode of Hashtag Talk to Mayo, the podcast. I am your host, Chris Mayo, uh, legal recruiter and uh, LinkedIn influencer, always aiming to cut through the corporate banality and the bullshit of LinkedIn to bring you something genuinely interesting. We've had lawyers who are partners. We've got lawyers who are junior associates. We've got people at all areas, uh, at all stages of their career, people who have gone on to set up their own law firms and become legal entrepreneurs. Had a couple of people that have gone to become yoga instructors, dietitians, somebody who went off to battle war crimes. And I'm trying to bring to light some of the stories that you don't hear covered in the legal press. It's always all about multi-million pound partners going to US law firms, which is great. And obviously, as a legal recruiter, we love that because we make loads of cash out of that. But actually, that's not always the most interesting story. So that brings me to today's guest. I'm sitting down and having a chat with Molly O'Donnell, who is a financial advisor, wealth manager. Um, she and I first got in touch when she was doing a, a survey about legal salaries. And having spoken with her, it kind of made me realize that uh, as a legal recruiter, here I am dealing with lawyers who are going from earning good money to earning great money. And I just always assumed that they knew exactly what to do with all of this money that they're earning and that they would be very astute when it comes to their personal finances. But as it transpires, sitting down, speaking with Molly and her specialization, working with solicitors in particular, um, has gone to show me that actually lawyers are far too busy to know what the hell to do with all this money. And they quite often just sit on it and they're not putting it out to go and work for them. So I thought, let's get Molly on the podcast. Let's get somebody who knows what my candidates and my lawyers should be doing with all this cash and to give them some plain, simple advice. So I'm hoping that today is going to be really informative um, and that you guys will get something out of it. So uh, if you enjoyed it, please drop us a message on uh, on LinkedIn, leave a comment, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, um, or drop a comment on the, uh, the LinkedIn page when we release this episode. Let me know what you think. And equally, if you have any follow-up questions for me or for my guests, please do get in touch. Um, and equally, uh, I'll be posting some contact details for Molly. So if any of you out there are interested in getting some primo financial advice from somebody who understands the predicament of a city lawyer, then Molly is exactly the person to get in touch with. Now it's time to hear from Molly. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, Chris. Hey, Molly. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. It's uh it's Friday and I'm feeling good. Oh, I, finally. It's been such a busy week. I don't know about with you, but it's been manic this side. Oh, God, yeah. It's, um, I mean, for, for legal recruiters, last year was an absolute washout, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year, I think all the law firms that I work for are trying to make up for lost ground. And yeah, yeah it's manic. And that, but that's why I've got my Friday shirt on. <laughs> I can't say the same. I dressed quite smartly. I felt like I needed to be in the right mindset. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to get in the business mindset to talk some business here. I did indeed. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Um, Well, look, um, I've I've, I've done a a, a quick little intro um, for for the listeners. Obviously, we're not going out live, so don't worry. Um, But I think the best place to start is for you to tell us in your own words a little bit about how you got into the game of uh, financial and wealth management. Okay, so where to start? So I grew up in Somerset and knew from quite an, well, thought from quite an early age that I wanted to study law. I think probably because at the time it was very much, right, you're an accountant, lawyer or doctor, pick which one suits you best and law worked quite well for me. So um, 
did kind of was on that focus all throughout school did some really great work experience and thought that was what I wanted to do went to uni and studied law and and loved it as well so um always still thought I was going to be on that route but I think once I then finished university I realized that it wasn't actually law that I was interested in I'd had some really great work experience which I think skewed what I thought the legal industry was going to be like and then realized that probably wasn't going to be as glamorous as being a judge at the old Bailey when I just left university so I really liked the variety of law and still have a, a huge interest in that area, but knew that it wasn't quite the right career for me. So I started exploring other options of, right, where can I have lots of client contact, meet new people every day, still advise in a professional capacity in some way, but find something that's slightly more suited to my skill set and what I wanted to do. And then came across wealth management and haven't haven't looked back from there. I think it combines what I liked about the legal industry, but yeah, suits my skill set more. So it's good. Works well. Yeah, absolutely. So currently you're, uh, you're working, well, I, I think the, the, uh, the arrangement of the business that you work for is, uh, is quite interesting. So I, I, have I got it right in thinking that you are a, sort of a self-employed consultant? Yes. So I work under a company called St. James's Place, um, who many people have come across. They're, the, they're a FTSE 100 company, largest wealth management company in the UK. But I work underneath them as someone who's self-employed. So there's a couple of layers. There's St. James's Place that sits at the top. Um, I advise on all of their products. So they um, have an investment management committee who look after the funds and the technical side of it. They also help with compliance, which is very necessary. Um, but then underneath that, I sit under another company called Fortress Wealth Partnership. So although I'm self-employed underneath them, I work with Fortress just because I wanted to be in a, a firm kind of atmosphere and have colleagues around me. So it's a really nice way of running my own business and advising clients directly, but with the support of the company behind me. So it's a bit of a hybrid, I think. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh... I guess the best of both worlds situation. I, yeah. So uh, let's, I guess, sort of make this a little bit more uh, specific to our to our listeners. Mm -hmm. You and I first came across each other when you were doing a survey, I think, in relation to an article that you were putting together. Um, and it sort of came to light that a particular interest and specialism of yours is uh, is the legal industry. Now, obviously, that that ties into your to your background, having studied law and uh, gone to work. I think I imagine it would have been with barristers that you were working with, which is why you thought that the law would be this sort of uh, glamorous yeah. career on your feet uh, down at the Old yeah. Bailey. But what was it that sort of drew you to uh, having that specialism? And I think, in particular, you do a lot of work with female lawyers too. Mm -hmm. But what's the background to that? So, well, mainly, well, it started off quite organically because a lot of the people that I went to university with were working in the legal industry. So it started off kind of when you contact friends and family and start building up your network. I was just working with a lot of people in the legal industry. Once I then started to work with a variety of different people, I realized that it worked really well working with um, both men and women in the legal industry because I, understand it, I understood quite a lot about how they work. So having done work experience, and I don't profess to have ever worked in the industry properly, but having done work experience at 
with barristers, with solicitors firms, I understand quite a lot about the remuneration and how it works. So that's already put me in quite good stead because you save 15 minutes of every meeting, not having to run through the structure of how they're paid. Obviously, it differs with each individual, so it's important to check, but already put me in quite a good position. But I think having the knowledge of that is one thing because people can learn that. For me, it was more about the mindset of solicitors in particular. So barristers can be quite different, but with solicitors, there are a couple of common traits I found, and again, generalization, but mostly about being very detail orientated. So although I didn't go down the legal route, I think my mindset is quite similar in that if I wanted to make any decisions about anything, well, when I was buying my house, I was the same. I wanted to know everything about everything before I signed on the dotted line. So because my mindset is quite similar, working with solicitors who often want to know all of the detail as well, is quite a nice fit because I'm happy to go through everything. I understand that that's what they tend to want before they before they go ahead. So that was why that's why I work with a lot of solicitors in general. Just a good fit um, yes. for clients. Now, I uh, sorry to sorry to cut you off there, but okay. a point just sort of struck me because I'd always assumed before talking to you that. Of course, lawyers are going to know absolutely everything about what to do with their personal finances. They're these type A personalities who are, as you say, super detail oriented, know everything about everything, and they will have their finances you know, sorted to a T. You and I had a quick coffee and you were you sort of quite quick to tell me that actually no. And I wonder, is it is there an aspect of it that because they are so detail oriented, they want to know everything about absolutely everything that's going on, but they're also at the same time, very time poor that they think, well, if I can't do this properly and absolutely dive, do a deep dive into this, then I'm sort of not going to do it at all. Yeah. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. And that's what I really find with solicitors is they don't. And again, I'm speaking about solicitors as opposed to barristers um, for the, this part, but they don't have the time to do all the detail and exactly what you're saying. They they want to do it properly. So that often stops them from doing anything at all because they know they don't have the time. Also, I think it's, it's tricky when they're so time poor, when you come to the end of the day after a really long day of dealing with tricky client issues or tricky contracts, the last thing you want to do is open your spreadsheet of expenditure and go through go through that so I think that's definitely um, one of the issues I've come across a lady actually when I was doing my interviews and surveys so that was about the unique financial challenges that female solicitors face and she joked and she said oh I'd love to come and see a financial advisor but I don't even have the time to do the research on the financial advisor that I would pick so (laughs) for her it was that she wouldn't even go to that stage and and I found this Um, with, well, most clients, but also solicitors in particular, they really like to meet a few financial advisors to see who they click best with, again, to properly do their research, which is great because then they're engaged in the process and that's a really good starting point. So finding that time, if you're speaking to three other advisors, to have four hour long meetings is is quite chunky. Yeah, I mean, there's tremendous, I think, synergies between um between your world and and mine in that i think that there's a lot of lawyers out there that think i would actually quite like uh, a new job but i haven't even got time to go in and 
check on LinkedIn or mm-hmm. speak to a recruiter or, or do anything like that. So yeah. that that really chimes with my experience. So mm-hmm. let's uh, let's talk quickly uh, about this uh, article that you put together because it was it was quite interesting. Um, and uh, I was it was obviously how you and I ended up getting in touch in the first mm-hmm. place. So what was it about and, and where can people find it? So you can find it on my LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, that's probably the easiest place. It was very much a guide on why female solicitors, and it was focused on female solicitors, this one, why they don't do financial planning, but why it's really important to. So I did a survey with um, lots of solicitors that I know about if they haven't had financial advice, why not? And there are a couple of things that came out. The first one was being time poor, as we've discussed, so not even having time to, to find an advisor. The second, or the, there were two others that resonated with most people, and one was being risk adverse. So not one, to, well, solicitors' jobs in general is to make sure that nothing goes wrong and everything is is covered off correctly. So the thought of investing is sometimes quite at odds with that because it is inherently risky. So I talked a little bit about that and why it is still important to invest if if you're in a position to do so and you've ticked off everything else before, but why that shouldn't be at odds with being risk adverse. And also about fear of delegation. So often if you're a solicitor, you're in control of everything. It's your job to know everything about everything. And often you're quite scared to outsource big decisions. So it was a little bit about that and hoping to educate people that it's a it's a relationship. It's not a, a passing over of responsibility. So it was a lot about that, but also why it is important to financial plan. So it's fine to say you should be doing it, but why? So it was a little bit about um, especially female solicitors, something that came up a lot was that it's really hard to balance tough hours in the city with raising a family, if that's what you'd like to do. Um, it is evening out with men and women, and we do see it hit men as well, but it still tends to be the woman who has to sacrifice the career if they want to balance everything. So it was more about getting a plan in place early so that when that time comes, it's not a decision about money. And you can make the decision that's right for you and your lifestyle, as opposed to trying to stick at a job that isn't working just because you need to pay the bills. So it's about having that robust planning in place. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you raise a couple of points there, I guess, about the sort of the changing nature of um, parental responsibility and how that's going to to shift. And obviously, there's there's a hu- there's there's a whole other podcast episode to be to be to be done about that another time. Um, but I think you know we can probably leave aside the sort of the the why the why that is and, and whether it's right or wrong um, for 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 another conversation. I guess sort of just sort of stick with you know the reality of the situation as it is now for for the majority of people um let's start from here what where are lawyers typically going wrong when it comes i mean aside from not not addressing it at all but what what are the sort of key specific mistakes if you will or omissions uh, of the lawyers that you work with well i would say the first one i know we keep coming back to it but the first one is not doing anything at all so lawyers are normally in a good position where they're earning well so it isn't as much of a priority in their minds to financial plan because they've got a good salary coming in. It's regular. They don't need to worry about how they're going to pay the mortgage. So not doing anything is the biggest mistake because there's so much more they could be doing with that money. 
The second one is not doing anything with savings once they're built up. So most of the lawyers that I speak to are really good at saving. So they're really good at putting money aside. They're very disciplined. But then it's just sat in an account, not doing anything. So I think that can be quite damaging over the long term with inflation because interest rates aren't very high at the moment. I don't want to go into technical aspects of investing or anything. But if that money sat there not doing anything then it, yeah, it's not going to go well in the future. No, I mean, I think that's quite a pertinent point because there's news in the press today about, you know, potential, you know, in, inflation rising. I think that's a, a huge worry at the moment with all of the uh, the money that's been injected into the economy at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to put it to put it simply, uh, it, essentially, if you leave your, your money just sat in an account, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that safe i.e it could actually devalue over time am i right in saying that sorry i'm very financially illiterate (laughs) (laughs) no that's exactly right so if you're if you're not getting an interest rate on your account that's higher than inflation your money isn't keeping pace in real terms so a good example of that is the freddo example that everyone always uses but 20 pence isn't going to get you a freddo nowadays because the cost of everything's gone up Um, and you can do all the all the maths on it and i won't bore you with that but about what £10 will be worth in 10 years time. So if your money isn't keeping pace with inflation, which if there's any interest rates out there that are, I'd love to know about them because I can tell all my clients about them, but there's not a lot out there, then you're losing money in real terms. So I always say to people, yes, there's risk involved with investing. Of course there is. But by not doing anything with it, there's no risk. The only the only guarantee is that your money is going to go down. So it's about balancing about balancing that yeah okay so lawyers come to you they've let's say hypothetically you've got somebody who's sitting on a decent amount of uh, of cash savings um what are the kind of things that people should be looking into with regard to, to doing stuff with that money to put it to work to protect it i guess a bit from inflation and to to benefit from you know the, the compound interest and all of that kind of stuff Well, I think the first thing is to review everything. So cash sitting in the bank is one area of it. And that is something that we do come across quite often with lawyers. But I think the first step in any financial planning, and we can help, we help our clients to do this, but you can just as easily do it on your own, is to review your current situation. So it's really difficult to know what your goals and objectives should be or what you should be doing going forward if you don't know where you are currently. So even with people who are very experienced with their finances, the first thing that we always do is go through budget expenditure, and they normally do that themselves and then bring it back to us to see if they could be saving any more or whether they're they're on track. Once you've looked at the saving and budgeting side of things, it's about what your goals are for those savings. So yes, it, it can be great if you're putting money aside, But what do you actually want to do with that? What is it for? Is it to buy a house? Is it to save for maternity leave? Is it to just go on nice holidays? Um, Because before you know what those goals are, it's quite hard to put in place plans to get you there. So once clients have established that, then it's easy for us to put in place products or plans that work for them to get there. I think something that's often missed, and this is very much for people who are employed, but is employee benefits. So a lot of good a lot of the big firms have great employee benefits so one area of financial planning that's really important is to review that and see whether there's any gaps so 
is really not the nicest topic to think about, but it's important. If anything were to happen to you, what would happen? What would be the consequences of that? If you're single with no children, then it might not be as bad. But if you've got a family, who's going who's gonna to look after them if anything happens? So checking things like life insurance, critical illness, if it's there, is, is really key. Because again, the same with saving and investing, unless you know what's there in the first place, you can't address any gaps. So we always look at that with clients. So reviewing what they have in place and see whether there's any gaps in that. And then looking at pensions. So exactly the same thing again with the building blocks. What do you have in place currently? Could you be making more higher contributions? Is that on offer from the employer? And from there, what does that look like in retirement? And if there's a shortfall between what you want, which is tricky because not many people know exactly what they want in retirement, but how can we get you to where you need to be in the future? So quite simple steps. I think sometimes financial planning is is seen as overcomplicated and it doesn't need to be. It's very much about doing the basics well and going from there. Yeah. Um it's interesting that you talk about um benefits because as a as a as a legal recruiter I see these things quite often um pretty much all candidates that i place will have some form of you know benefits on offer from the law firm that they work with uh but rarely is it ever a point of negotiation and i i guess for a lot of people they can't really negotiate their benefits packages particularly if they're they're not a sort of a super senior um individual but i i think people often give them a very cursory uh, a very cursory glance. And I guess, as you say, in terms of things like life insurance and life assurance and all of those kinds of stuff, they can often be seen as, oh, that's not going to happen to, that's not going to happen to me. So I don't particularly need to worry about it. Um, but if potentially that could be quite an important deciding factor um, for, for somebody who is going to be taking um, a new role. Um, I guess when when your when your clients do take new roles, are you ever involved in kind of reviewing those packages and, and actually letting them know what 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 it means? Because sometimes I read those things and it just sort of all goes over my head. And I imagine for 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 a lot of lawyers, it probably does too. Yes. So we we look at that when clients move. Um, as you say, it's often they aren't normally negotiable, so it is quite tricky to do anything about it. But it's more important to know what you have in place. I think it's also important to make people aware when they're employed. If you're employed at a firm when you're, let's say, 25, you're going to have probably life insurance in place. But obviously, then if you leave that company, that that's lost. But it is, we often see people relying solely on what's in their workplace. Whereas if you're 25, take out a life policy cost per month than if you take it out when you're 55 so we do always make people aware that yes employee benefits are fantastic and they can be absolutely invaluable but if you solely rely on those you may become unstuck later in life when if say you move to a consultancy firm when you're 50 that doesn't have any life insurance or employee benefits taking that out at that stage will be a significant cost compared to if you took it out when you're younger. So I think it's reviewing them and knowing that they're there and of course appreciating that they're there because they can really help people in bad situations. 
but also knowing the limitations of that and whether you need additional cover, whether you need additional support sometimes, and it all depends on what the firm's offering. Sometimes it wouldn't even pay off the mortgage for some people if they've got big mortgage debts outstanding. So it's just about checking the limitations of them and whether they're going to adequately cover you. But no, I agree. It's definitely important to review, but it is quite tricky because they're not normally an area that you can negotiate. So it's more about awareness around them, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Another thing I want to talk to you about is, I guess, the, you know, the sort of the financial upsides of of actually engaging with this process. Um, because I can imagine this is something which people sort of put off for another day, much like drafting their CV when I need a yeah. candidate to, to, to get going. That it's always, it's always a task for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I think that surely there's tremendous benefit, particularly when it comes to uh, investing in starting that process um, as soon as possible so that you know particularly if you're you're not interested in going down the very risky investments to try and you know maximize your returns in the short term if you're looking to you know adopt a sort of uh, very vanilla Warren Buffett style um, mm-hmm. sort of incremental gain strategy presumably you know the longer that you've got your money out there working for you the greater the return is going to be mm-hmm. um, I mean, I guess for it really depends on how much money that you've got sort of sitting around. But, you know, t- typically, what would you say is often the sort of the difference over a sort of a five, 10 year period financially for somebody that does engage with investments uh, uh, versus somebody who just kind of leaves their cash to to do nothing? That might be a really hard question to answer, by the way. So <laughs> that, that's an impossible question to answer in terms yeah, okay. of figures. But I think it's, as you say, compound interest is the biggest um the biggest way to make the most of your money. So having that invested for much longer is always going to be beneficial. I think as opposed to simply the in financial terms, because we would run all the numbers and show you how beneficial it is in terms of compound interest. But I think for me, it's much more around starting early because then you, it's much more affordable and achievable. So if you started even doing 50 pounds from the day that you left university, you're going to be in a much better situation. And that end pot of money, let's just use £100,000, for example. If you wanted to save £100,000 by the time you were 50 for a goal that you had in the future, if you start doing that when you're in your 20s, you have to contribute much less per month to get you to that point. Plus then all the added effects of compound interest, which are going to help you out to get there anyway. If you don't start until you're 45, that's a lot of money that you're needing to put away each month to get you to that end goal. So I think from that point of view, it's really important, but also just the discipline in terms of putting money away. I think once you're in the habit of doing it, you don't miss it. So that then makes it much more affordable when you do need to save for something. So we see a lot of people who potentially they've just bought their first house. There's no big goals on the horizon at the moment, but they've got excess money that they need to do something with. If you get into the habit of putting it into a good place, then when you do need to start saving for something like a wedding or children, anything that's coming up on the horizon, it's not a big mindset shift to think I was spending all that money. Now I need to start saving because you're always already in the habit of doing it. So I think from that point of view, but with any of these things as it compound interest is the main one and we can run all the facts and figures on specific amounts, but it just does a lot of the hard work for you. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to be to be, you know, the only way to really sort of set set yourself up financially is, you know, either to um, sort of run and run and probably sell a very sizable business or um, to to put your money out there and make it work, you know, make it work mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'm a let's say I'm a, a risk averse solicitor. Um, I've got a bit of cash, but I'm worried about um, I'm worried about losing it. Uh, I do want to invest though. What are the kind of products that somebody who is perhaps slightly more on the risk of a scale is going to be um, sort of more likely to be be interested in? So the products wouldn't matter as much. So what we always say to the client is it's about what your goals and objectives are and what the asset allocation is. So stop me if I'm if I'm being too technical and not making sense. But the product itself is just the wrapper that goes around it. So that doesn't have an impact necessarily. Some products are inherently high risk, but if we're talking about the basic products, that won't necessarily have an impact on the risk. What we would be discussing is if you're investing, what it's invested in. So a good example of that is, so I can talk about my own pension. I'm not retiring anytime soon, although it does look quite nice when I have to wake up on a Monday morning, but I won't be retiring anytime soon. So I can afford to take much higher risk with my money because it's locked away until retirement age. So it's all about looking at what you're, when you're going to need those funds and that impacts a lot of the risk. So a lot of the time it is educating the person about what risk means, why it is worth taking risk. So if you can't touch that money because it's in your pension, you can afford to ride out the stock market much more than you can if you need that money in, in six years' time. So it's mainly talking to people about what it's invested in. I think once people have a greater understanding of it, which is our job to educate people, then they're more comfortable with it. I think there's a lot of people who, when they think about investing, they think about cryptocurrency, which we absolutely do not advise on, um, but unregulated, risky areas like that. So it's definitely about speaking to the client and understanding or educating them about what investing means. And we'll then get a grip of or get an understanding of what their risk profile is and go from there. Yeah, I mean, you you, you touched on a bit of a sore point for for me there on uh, on crypto because uh, I got I got ro- I got roped into that right at the top of the market, and I've halved my stake, guys. So mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're thinking about crypto, maybe don't do it, guys. Yeah, um, well, it's we always say to people, you, fine if you want to do it, but do it with money that you don't mind losing, because if it's definitely. If it's your beer money, that's fine. If it's your life savings, probably not. I think the problem with things like cryptocurrency for us is that they're unregulated. You don't, I had someone the other day actually who was speaking to me about it. He'd made a lot of money on cryptocurrency. And then I'm going to use all the wrong terminology here, but someone mined him and he lost all of his cryptocurrency. So all of this money that he was relying on got basically taken away from him. And because it's so unregulated, no no one can do anything about it. So I think it's that level of risk that's that worries me personally. Yeah. And that it's you can't really value it. It's really difficult to get an accurate valuation on crypto, which means that it's really hard to invest in it because if you can't invest in something well if you don't know what how it's valued. Yeah. Uh, another thing that which just um, uh, uh, popped into my mind, I think, from 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 when we first had a chat, um, is that 
I think some lawyers maybe have said to you in the past that they're worried about investments because of potential for sort of conflicts of interest mm. and, and, and insider trading. Um, what do you have to say on that? So I think it's really important to ask those questions. So if you're a solicitor, especially if you're working in commercial corporate areas, you absolutely cannot invest in something that you are picking yourself because of the conflict of interest and insider trading. So I think it's first, the first question you should be asking any advisor is how does it work? How is it going to run? Because that's not a risk that anyone should be taking. For us personally, I can only speak for my own company, but there's a lot of others that work in the same way. The client would have a we'd have a conversation with the client about what they'd want to be invested in in terms of asset classes and whether they have any views on that but they wouldn't be picking the funds themselves so even we don't pick them as advisors it's run by the investment management committee and the, then underneath that the fund managers so for example we would have a uk equity fund run by a fund manager that doesn't work it they work for their own company running funds for st james's place they're the ones making the decisions so if a client said to me i want to invest in an oil company in scotland we wouldn't be able to do that for them and there's no way of them having control over the funds that they're picking so of course they have oversight of them they know what they look like but they couldn't do it themselves, which takes away that conflict of interest and insider trading. And we quite often for people who work in not not just the legal industry, but accounting, auditing, we write a letter to that effect to say they don't have control over what it's being invested in. So it takes away that stress. But it is, of course, really important that the person that you're using as a financial advisor or an investment manager can talk you through how that works, because it's not worth taking the risk, but it's not worth not doing anything because you're worried about that risk because it can be combated yeah absolutely uh now i'm i'm, I'm conscious that I, I can't take up too much of your time because i know that you've got a you've got you've got to dash off for uh, uh, some uh, some work to the home but um i think for lawyers out there who are listening who are thinking right okay well maybe i you know maybe i should engage with um with a financial advisor obviously guys get in touch with Molly. You know, she, she, knows, she knows what to tell you. But what, what kind of questions does a lawyer need to ask? Like how, do, how, do they, how do they pick a financial advisor? And when they get there, what, what do they need you know, to, to ensure that they're speaking to somebody who really knows what they're doing? What do you think are the sensible questions to be asking? So the first most important thing is that you get on with the person. So as an absolute minimum, but we see them more regularly, we see our clients every year. So if you don't like the person that you're meeting every year, it's painful for both people. So that would be my first non-negotiable is pick someone that you like and you get on with. It's also important that you can have open conversations with them. So I personally do work with friends and family. Some advisors won't just as a rule of thumb because they feel like they can't have as open a conversation, which I completely understand. And there are certain people I wouldn't work with because of that. But it needs to be someone that you can tell them everything, because the more we know as advisors, the more we can do our job to help you get to where you want to be. So that would be the first most important thing. I'd say the second, and it shouldn't always be fee focused, but you need to know what you're paying. You need to know what they're charging you. 
And if an advisor can't explain that to you and or is hesitant to explain it to you, then I don't think they're the right person to go with personally. I think people should be very happy to talk you through fees, happy to talk you through how they're being taken. Because if they're not comfortable with talking you through that, there's probably something that they're they're hiding from you. So I'd say that's a really important one. I would also ask so that I have an understanding of how the funds are being invested. So is it that person that's investing them? At St. James's Place, we use the Investment Management Committee and how they select the fund managers is important because unless you know that, you don't know how your money is being run. So they would be the main ones. But then as you so if you think that you like that advisor and you want to go with them, I would also get an understanding of how the relationship's going to work. So how are they going to communicate with you? How often are they going to update you? How do you have access to seeing what your funds are and how they're doing? So I think just transparency around how the relationship's going to work. And also any questions that are specific to you. So this is quite quite a niche one, I guess. But if, for example, you're really interested in ethical investing, speak to someone who can explain to you how they work in an ethical way and what their funds are in that area. So I would say to not be hesitant to ask anything that's important to you because some advisors will have a leaning towards ethical investing and be real experts in that area. Some will be experts at working with solicitors. Some will be experts at working with pilots. So really digging down about what's important to you is key. But I would say the main things for me that would be non-negotiable is liking the person, how the relationship's going to work going forward, how they're managing your money and how it's going to be invested and fees. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pick up on one of those points. So you were saying, uh, I guess, clearly from a transparency perspective, you want to know, um, you know, I guess, sort of who is in charge of allocating those funds and how fund mm-hmm. managers are picked. But what uh, I guess, what are the sort of the the key things to sort of look out for in regard to that? You know, what what are you trying to differentiate between here, and and, and what might you want to consider when somebody's you know telling you exactly how they're going to do that? So I think the first no brainer would be that everyone's regulated. I'm most advisors you speak to that will be a bit of a that should be taken for granted. Most people will be. But obviously being a check that they're covered by FCA and everything or Financial Conduct Authority and all the appropriate bodies, because if anything were to go wrong, then you wouldn't be covered. In terms of the fund managers, I think it's important to know who the end fund manager is and that it's someone with a track record or if it's someone that hasn't got a track record, why are you choosing them? So, for example, when St. James's Place select the fund managers, they go and scour the globe for who they think are the best people, but why are they the best people? Some of them, they've had a proven track record of delivering performance for years and years. Some of them are new, but their investment strategy fits in with what we like. So I think it's not always about who it's going to be invested in because everyone's got to start somewhere and there are brilliant fund managers who may not have a long track record, but will still be great. But I think it's looking at what their investment strategy is and whether that matches up with what you want. So we've got great fund managers whose aim is to outperform the market massively and to get huge performance. That might not necessarily suit my mum, who's approaching retirement and needs something lower risk. So I would say 
looking at who the fund managers are, but more importantly, why the advisor, if you're going for an advisor, why they've chosen them for your funds is really key. Okay. And another thing that you said there, I guess, um, about age. So have I got it right in thinking that the younger you are potentially you should be looking at things that are maybe towards the top end of your your risk appetite and the older, perhaps the lower end of the risk? Or is that just an oversimplification? I'd say an oversimplification at, but on age, but it's definitely about time frame. So if you look, well, COVID's a good example, actually. So if you, we never recommend that anyone invests for lower than five years, really, because we believe that's the time over which the performance will even out. If, for example, you invested in January of last year, the markets then dropped by crazy amounts. I think the FTSE was down 20, 30% at one point. If you then needed your money back the month after that, you're not in a good position. Whereas if you look at now compared to March last year, those funds have had time to recover and they've had huge um, growth on those. But if you needed your money at that point, then you'd be in a bad position. So... Investing over the longer term means that you can afford to invest in riskier funds that are going to have lower lows because you've got enough time to get the highs for it to even out. Yeah, okay. So I think it's very much about time scale, but also about your other assets. So you could be older, you could be retired, but if you're looking at investing, just for argument's sake, £20,000 of your money into an ISA, but you've got an estate worth... 3 million, you can afford to take risk with that 20,000 pounds because it's money that if you needed and the market had fallen, you won't need to get it out because you've got money elsewhere. So age does tend to have a factor, obviously, because if you're retiring, you don't have income coming in and we call it capacity for loss, but your capacity for loss is slightly lower. So age has a factor, but it's more about timescale of that investment. Okay. So I think we should uh, we should we should have some some sort of final points to uh, to wrap this up. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you think is a particularly pertinent issue? Um, anything that you would like to say to any of the lawyers listening um, uh, about what they they should be thinking about and considering at the moment? I would say my main point would be go and speak to someone. So even if it's a fifteen minute conversation with a financial advisor just so that you know that you're on the right track. You don't have to commit to anything at that stage, but then the worst thing that will happen in that meeting is that they tell you that you're not quite there and this is what you need to do. So I would say definitely speak to someone about what your planning issues are. Even if you feel that you're on track, do a review of where you are currently. I think unless you know where you are currently, as I said, it's really difficult to plan. So that would be my my main takeaway is is do something, even if you think you're on track, because nothing bad will come from it. Yeah, it's one of those things. You only need to spend 15 minutes or so having that initial conversation, mm-hmm. just doing just do something, do something rather than rather than nothing. Um, exactly. It doesn't you know, I think we've kind of worked out uh, through this chat that it doesn't need to be a super involved, really lengthy process. It can be fairly fairly painless once you found the right person to to partner with and and work Mm -hmm. on your goals with Um, and then you can let this compound interest and investments Mm -hmm. do its magic in the background and you can kind of be safe in the knowledge that 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 you're you're onto something uh, and you're not you're not losing out to inflation which is allegedly coming so yeah 
Well, that's that's been that's been great. As I said, it was um, it was very much not on my radar that there were so many lawyers out there that weren't really engaging with their finances in the same way that they're you know engaging with you know other other things in their professional lives. Um, and I, I really hope that uh, some people listening to this will um, will have been spurred on to um, to, to do something. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, Molly, um, I will be posting uh, links to your uh, LinkedIn account when we release this episode, okay. so people can drop you a line there um presumably you're also um uh, around uh, your 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 email address or um your you'll be on the website of um of your firm fortress yeah i've also got an instagram account i mean i'm not i don't profess to be an influencer or anything along those lines but what i try and do on that is just post regular up well as regular i should post more regularly but regular updates on things that are going on so just to break things down in a jargon-free way. So for someone who doesn't have much time, that might be a good place to start just so you're starting to get get facts and figures through. So I'll send you the link to that as well. Yeah, super. Well, actually, you might, you might as well say now, what's, do you know what your handle is? I think it's molly.odonnell1, but if you search money with Molly, it should also come up. Money with Molly, I like it. You heard um, it here first. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did hear it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to follow you. Um, righto, I'm gonna, uh, I'll stop the recording there. Thanks everybody for for listening. I hope you got a lot, a lot out of it. And and Molly, thank you very, very much for spending the time to 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 chat with us through this. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Cheers.